so we're we're, uh, we're super excited to bring on the show Kate Wagner of McMansion Hell fame and many other uh, beautiful pieces on uh, architecture criticism and uh, and sound design. Kate, welcome to Ironweeds. Thank you. And uh, and hello, hello. Hey. And we're gonna we're gonna look at your um, piece that came out in June, hyperallergic. But we also know that lately you have uh, got bicycle pilled. And uh, and fuck yeah, and you're yeah. working a lot on your on your bike. And there's a couple of there's like a local news story that we want to cover also. So um, absolutely not in that order. Let's <laughs> let's start with uh with the bullshit that's happening just north of us on uh, 10, 11, Second Avenue, right? It's Avenue. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So listeners to last episode will recall that I we meant to talk about it in the show and then we forgot to record it. So I s- snuck in a little intro saying, please sign this um, change.org petition to appeal to the city council to not allow for a fucking new apartment building that we don't need to be built on the last uh, wooded like slot of land on the Hudson in Troy. And it, you know, is land that's important to several different indigenous people from the region. It's a very beautiful, you know, like wooded area that just, yeah. we don't, we have, there's so many buildings in Troy that are unoccupied right now. Why do we, you know, it's just another thing that we've talked about on the show countless times is these development projects that, you know, the city gives sweetheart deals to, to build buildings that we really don't need. And you can probably imagine Kate, but we have now what, like eight, gigantic condo apartment structures that are you know um they're eft which you know has good you know uh they're eft yeah they're eft uh, exterior insulated facing which is like really good ecologically because like it takes the thermal mass and actually insulates that from the environment but uh they're ugly as hell and they are mostly catering to the top five percent of the housing market which drives up median rent costs which causes the sort of mom and pop landlords to all follow suit because everyone's incentivized to charge as much as they can which causes displacement and gentrification and blah 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 but basically we live in a little uh rust belt city that is post-industrial and has like a ton of excellent durable housing stock that was built in the 1800s that just needs people to fix it up a little bit just needs new windows and like (laughs) plumbing updates yeah yeah yeah, and often a couple roof fixes and stuff and the city has an auction where you can get these houses for like nothing like two thousand dollars or something as long as you're willing to like get them up to code within a certain period of time and pay taxes on them um so we actually in fact live in a housing glut but that isn't stopping these gigantic developers from coming in and just building unwanted unneeded uh speculative housing units in the hundreds per you know uh building or you know uh complex this one was yeah, like 200 they, yeah they want like 200 plus units in this building yeah yeah, yeah. with with of course on-site parking gotta have on-site parking and, oh god really yeah that's so terrible and, and so the owner of this parcel uh also owns a like uh parcel that has a dilapidated price chopper which is our local like supermarket chain uh which would be perfect for demo because it's like a fucked up building and like they would just be able to you know build residence uh right where there's actually like sort of a strip molly kind of like set of retail services but instead they want to bulldoze this pristine land that has not been touched uh in terms of development for like three thousand six thousand years you know or something ridiculous it has all these archaeological um findings that show that it was like a tool making site because there's like some type of like flint or something flint naps yeah yeah and it has all this uh cultural and uh biological uh importance being like a a, a very rare niche uh along the developed hudson you know in, in our area and there was complete unanimous dissent 
in our local city hall uh, meeting, our, um, our city council meeting on Thursday, where for two and a half hours, the city council had to listen to people call in and talk about how much they don't want this development to happen. There and were like over 500 signatures. It was yeah. close to 700, actually. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. yeah. And basically, <laughs> the city council listened to this for like three hours and then it was just like, Nah, fuck y'all. <laughs> uh, and it's it, it's just one of those things like, you know, you hear a lot, especially around the presidential election times that people are like, you're focusing too much on the on the national level. Like the real issue is that people aren't involved in local politics. You need to, you know, go out and run for dog catcher and you need to like pay attention to your local elections and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just here to tell you that that don't work either. We have a Democratic majority on the city council. Like there's yeah. a Democratic no, mayor, a Democratic mayor. This is like Baltimore, Maryland right here yeah so anyway that's that's our bone to pick for the week and do you guys have do you guys have yimbies in troy oh, <laughs> oh yeah oh uh, yeah we, we've got some yimbies the yes in my backyard people who are like you have to just build more and then the price goes down because they don't like, like what is troy that like needs like so much housing stock like so quickly yeah it was, i wasn't aware that like the tech industry had moved to new york well, so we actually do. We do actually, though. We have um, like several uh, um, game developers. Because yeah. There's a, a fairly large uh, um, polytechnic that we are all graduates of. Um, oh, is it Rensselaer? Yeah, Rensselaer. And uh, um, <laughs> and so we have like a ton of like little game developers. And Cuomo has been like trying really hard to make like this like Tech Valley thing yeah. happen. So there there is like a lot of of tech money around here. But there's but... no shortage of housing. Yeah, right, yeah. Like it's so the, the 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 Yimby phenomenon is what like there's literally like a brownstone that has drawn on the side like this mural that says like uh um work hard like on it. <laughs> you know, there's like, like these people that like just like fetishize working and uh um and turning a old uh, brownstone into like some sort of luxury loft, luxury loft, like but also like a like a it, it's a um like a a, a a temple for the Protestant work ethic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so so Yimbyism gets turned into into it's that where it's like yeah, like I'm gonna d- subdivide this building into like five units. Yeah, we used to have a restaurant uh, before the owner uh, was um, unanimously walked out on by the entire uh, staff. They quit all on one day because he was just acting so, um, I don't know, unhinged. On restaurant uh, week, too. Yeah. yeah it, uh, I respect that. Yeah, it yeah. was really cool. They said they wrote, like, do better on the... <laughs> Yeah, but the um, the 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 restaurant was called the shop, and it was in an old um, hardware store that had you know dated back like 150 years or whatever. It had all these like rusted tools like on pegboard or whatever, like all around the interior brick. And so yeah, the the whole Protestant work ethic is a uh, it's a real chic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, this is a good, actually, a good bridge to uh, to your your essay because, like, you you'd get the menu at this restaurant and it looked like an old Sears Roebuck catalog, or it's like it's got the the oh, like wood God, relief paintings of so like funny. yeah, it's like like the wood relief sketches of like a, a like an old vice grip, and they have like yardsticks glued to the wall, the and tap handles like oh, a rusted like pipe barrel, like but gentrified. Yes, yeah, it, it was it was like a like a New England uh, cracker barrel, but for. <laughs> But but yeah, but, but for, for people with a drinking problem, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. But no shots. There was a sign on the wall that said, "We won't serve shots because that's not classy what? enough." That, yeah, that, yeah. Dude, you're like leaning into the, the Protestant part of the Protestant. 
professional work ethic. Yeah. Well, no, you here. have to order it neat was literally like, what it said. Go neat or go home, I believe is what the, <laughs> yeah. the sign said. I'm not joking. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> but yeah. Sure. I'm going to drink like fucking well whiskey neat oh there was no well whiskey <laughs> yeah there's no well at this yeah. place yeah. yeah no it was like a very bougie cocktail bar all the wait staff and the uh the back end were really great people though and they're still in the city and they're doing you know various other you know things on their own like burrito burrito uh spun out of that like the head chef uh I don't need to name it twice man i don't know whatever. <laughs> i don't support that at least they didn't call it burrito squared Actually, that's their uh, their their uh, website. <laughs> I love burrito burrito. They they have a they're a vegan burrito joint that um, has like a whole bunch of uh, veggie beef based uh, meat alternatives and stuff, and they're really delicious. And so, anyway, shout out to them. All right, so let's let's get into this uh, normie minimalism, as you call it, Kate. Uh, and farmhouse <laughs> design chic took over contemporary design. Right? How did all this happen and it starts off with talking about minimalism right which uh you also um cite uh kyle chaka who you know r- wrote a whole book on the thing which uh i i think um uh you sum up nicely as minimalism writ large has come to mean a combination of modern design and the ethos of living with less do you want to say something about like how these like two really different worlds right like the Mar- marie kondo declutter your life and then like donald judd like converge into a a single thing called minimalism it's like kind of fascinating i mean also like the emergence like in the like mid 2000s early 2010s of like minimalism as a lifestyle like people like doing like the van life thing you know where it's like i'm gonna get rid of all my stuff and live in a tiny house and like go like or like live in a van and like travel the country it it was sort of like this this like cultural phenomenon that just like minimalism like the art movement really like kind of didn't have anything to do with but like because there's just like they just like people just like kind of like seized on this word to describe like a phenomenon of like actually just like living without stuff uh or like living like more with more like in uh sort of empty spaces or it's interesting that like this this sort of just got dragged into it uh but it's it's also interesting because like minimalism itself like played a role like the art movement did because of the the their sort of like they the so a lot of the minimalist artists like in the 1960s like donald judd for example took a lot of loft space in soho back when soho was just like an industrial cesspool uh full of like old warehouses and just and like narrow streets that like truck drivers like hated going down it's a place where you can get cad cadmium poisoning <laughs> yeah exactly they were like wow like there's like just all these like big open spaces with like these huge windows that like nobody is living in uh and like nobody wants because industry had already started to move out of so into sort of like the suburbs uh and like other parts of the city that were more transit accessible for like freight and stuff and so uh, and also because these like 19th century sort of factory buildings were designed for 19th century manufacturing and like really couldn't stand up to like the, the heaviness and the weight and the equipment of 20th century stock stocking and manufacturing and so there was like a number of like building collapses and stuff like that that facilitated the exit of industry out of soho and so these these artists were just like damn this is like a lot of space and we can get it for cheap so they would just go in there and like there was like no heat like it was like it was not like exactly like as glamorous as like the movies would show i mean it was like there was like no they were living there like illegally they were basically squatters 
and they would just like do these like big artworks in there because they had the space. It was really, uh, it was, it was an important set of circumstances that enabled the genesis of a certain type of art at a certain scale of production, like pieces that could be much larger than, uh, like previously, uh, sort of like more installations rather than like just like producing, for example, like single artworks, like paintings or sculptures. And even those could be produced on like much larger scales because the space was just so huge and the light was so abundant because of like these giant windows. Uh, and they were all open because it was manufacturing. I mean, like there was no, basically no walls. There were no bathrooms. Like it was just like a total blank slate. And that was just liberating for for that generation of artists uh, and not just artists, but like musicians and like a lot of like the minimalist musicians of the time were like hanging out over there. Uh, people who are like not really famous, like Philip Glass, for example. And so it was it was kind of like this this renaissance that happened in like the mid 60s and the 70s that enabled like this type of art to be produced. But it also produced like as this became more sort of established as like an art space and like, you know, the city of New York started to take notice and started to be like, okay, maybe we should facilitate this because it's better than like, like abandonment or whatever. Then like art magazines and like zines and whatnot at the time would just like publish like these big spreads of like these guys, like, you know, painting shirtless in this huge open loft. And it facilitated this like new ideal of like what the artist was and like what it meant to live as an artist and like what, like being an artist in New York, like could be. And that sort of like aesthetic and that dream of like the big open loft with like, the, just like the minimal like industrial features and nothing but like a space to produce art with maybe like a single plant or whatever is still just like locked in like the public consciousness of of like what it means to be like an artist. Well, so so like since the seventies, right when New York City proper the the the, uh, the 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 municipal government like recognizes that this is happening, they start putting in all of these uh, laws to either incentivize it, but then also to bring it uh, like more into the. Um, like the legal framework of like where to live, right? Because it's illegal to live here because it's not zoned yeah. properly in it. And, and like you said, like there's no hot water sometimes. Yeah, no fire yeah, suppression I mean, system. Yeah. Like, no bathrooms. I used to live in a, like an artist warehouse like that in an old factory building. I was in Baltimore. I lived in the copycat building for those of you who are in the know. And uh, I lived on the top floor uh, in what was called the soft house. And, it was great. Like there was just like, it was like, we had like basically like 3000 square feet of open space. And we had like these big, like floral murals on the wall. And we had this loft space that was cool. And we had shows and I used to do like, like live, like synthesizer performances and stuff like that. Oh, fuck Back yeah. When I, was, when I was, yeah, I used to like build synthesizers uh, on like breadboards and do like that kind of like that kind of music. Badass. Uh, and, uh, run through like a bunch of like weird max plugins that I would make anyways uh back when i was was, like way cooler let's be real here like being an architecture is not as cool as like being like a like a dirt bag living in a warehouse circuit bending like with like basically like a bathroom that was like almost not functioning like the shower was like was like two feet off the ground you had to get because like all the plumbing was underneath it you had to like get on a step stool to get into the shower the shower's disgusting (laughs) there was like like dark stars on the ceiling in the bathroom and it was just i mean it was like a total my parents like when they like were helping me move and were like what the fuck are you doing like <laughs> my dad was and, but my dad like, he was like kind of like a hippie at heart was like yeah this is cool like we had an organ that was sick like we used to like like, uh, a, like a full-size like hammond organ in there wow. uh, no hammond organ oh okay and we uh yeah we i used to like just like i mean it was so great like i mean it was cold as shit in the winter like you like 
basically like you had to sleep like with a space heater next to your bed because like and it was on the top floor so like the like there were parts of the house that were like warmer like my roommate's like room and the rooms like were just like basically like thinly constructed drywall like it's like like uh it's like emotional support drywall it's like not like, <laughs> like completely like permeable to like sound and like the elements anyways so like they like my uh my roommate's like, like had had like the radiator that really worked and my radiator was just like kind of like half ass like one of them would work but one of them wouldn't and so I slept with like a space air it was awesome like let me be like completely clear it was great living there until like the ghost ship fire happened and then they shut everything down because basically the city of like Baltimore like there's like a lot of warehouse art spaces or there were in Baltimore like the whole scene art scene in Baltimore like all the experimental music all of like the art like was like kind of like run like quasi legally it was like basically illegal like i mean it was after waiting to happen in some cases and so like they after that fire happened in oakland they just shut everything down like there were no more shows and we used to have shows like every week like every week we'd have and it was like sanctioned by the city like it spurred like development around the area right yeah, yeah. which is very very common for that sort of subject yeah and after they shut it down, like the development just stopped. There was like a strip on like North Avenue that was just like, you know, was had like, it just like everything either like closed or moved. And like that strip is just empty except for like Joe Square, the pizza place now. Like it's, and like the two like movie theaters. Like it's really like, it was over. I mean, like after they shut it down, because like they were scared, like it was illegal. Like they were like, okay, this is like, we got to crack down on this. Like we, if we have like a, like something really bad happen here in Baltimore, like we already have like enough negative publicity anyways like so they just were like you know we'll just cut our losses like i'm sure like the art scene will like you know an art scene that had developed over the past like 30 20 years like produced like some of like baltimore's like most famous artists like like beach house like dan deacon for example uh oh, like yeah. just it was gone yeah and so like it's actually like as much as like we like to like promote the uh, soho sort of style of like artist space gentrification or whatever it's act actually like artists are like completely expendable when it comes to like what cities like they'll use artists to like you know spur development but like if like you know that's no longer profitable or like if like there's like a public safety risk that they see or like a public image risk they'll just be like yeah get out like and there's not mm. like they just evicted like everyone from like an artist residence that was like across the street from where i lived in the bell foundry like they just evicted everyone. They, they were living there illegally, but they just evicted them. And so, like that building is just empty now. Like no one's moved in there. I think they're going to build condos on top of it. I don't know, but it's like all of that development, all of that stuff, like the the area that was gentrifying, like in between, like Charles Village and Mount Vernon, like it just completely stopped after they because like, like people were just like fuck this. Like if you're not going to, you know, like if we like can't like have these shows, if we can't, like how do we make money? Like how do we make like the three hundred dollars a month we each pay seven of us living in like a loft how do we we can't if we don't have shows like if we can't get tips like if you know like you shut down like the theaters if you shut down this like we can't live anymore we just have to go somewhere else so it was like i mean it was really sad and then after after they shut down the shows that's when i moved out of the, of the copycat building yeah what you're describing is i'm sure like every single city has something similar that's happened to it at least once probably you know there's multiple waves of this in different parts uh different neighborhoods of cities and like what you're describing in baltimore in like what i guess like the early 2000s right like ish yeah, this is like this is like 2017 yeah 2017 yeah it, like, be, you know, like before you know like before that this is like what soho goes through in the late 70s early 80s right where yeah. this like um 
uh, bohemian, like really experimental art scene, then gets captured by real estate interests and and city government that want to capital literally capitalize on it and turn it into uh, something safer and more mainstream to interact with. And, and, yeah, and like, buy. like there's like basically like no art left in Soho. It's, yeah, it's just like the Nike store now. Like yeah, and you can just like buy into like being next to or like proximate to the the. The brand of Soho as artistic ish. I mean, there is a place where you can make your own lipstick. So if there, you're yeah, saying there. that's not art. It's kind of sus. They just like have historic like markers. So it's like, oh, like Fluxus was here, and you're like, cool. <laughs> that, now that's a, that's a lush. Like, yeah. <laughs> is it, isn't there still like uh there's like an apartment that you can go to that has like a pile of dirt in it or something oh yeah that's right kyle wrote about that no yeah. that's very cool yeah that's like one of the last holdouts of like the old soho which i respect but that woman is like really old i think so yeah. like i mean that's probably gonna get owned too you were talking about how um, uh, th- these artists would move into these post-industrial, empty, abandoned spaces and sort of, you know, set up these open-air, like, living, working co-ops, I guess, you know, where they were just yeah, like... Yeah, like, we oh. work. Yeah. Well, that was that was what I was, I was oh, going to say, it? is that, like, what, there seems to be some type of connective tissue that you might be able to... You probably know more about, um, but connecting that era to, like, the whole... Uh, pod share kind of spot where everyone's like living in, uh, and like, like a, we work, yeah, yeah, like we work or, or like the living uh situations where in overcrowded cities oh, like the New dorms, York, like quasi dorms, yeah, quasi dorms, like it's basically like a hostel that costs like you know a thousand dollars a month to like live in, and you yeah. you you share a room with like seven people, and it's basically sorry just... to bother you, dot jpeg, like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like but. Usually the bunks have like a curtain you can close, so you know it's not that bad. Dude, sorry to bother you. Like every time I think of it, see those like it's like we invented the dorm. It's like okay, like <laughs> you know, start wearing, making people like wear orange jumpsuits and like take horse pills. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> let me let me tell you a little something about the Pullman car factory. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I think that's definitely like because like I mean you have to think like the stock of buildings that those sort of like companies gravitated towards like we were for example like they were like old factory buildings like that weren't being used anymore and so like the previous option for those were just like demolition and self-storage and though like through like sort of like the fetishization of the loft uh as like a space for artists or as just like easily available like adaptive reuse like tax credit bait it became like oh like we can you know keep like this like aesthetic right this minimal like kind of like industrial aesthetic and yeah, we can just like kind of, kind of the, the spaces are so flexible that like what market that flexibility like why not capitalize on it and be like you can like work in a totally new way like with other people that you don't know in like a cubicle <laughs> you know it's like uh but it's cool like we have neon signs and like you can drink beer in here you know it's like it, it totally became like those buildings because they were so flexible like with the culture of the open office, which I didn't really write about in like the hypoallergic article, but like open office spaces uh, sort of like originated in San Francisco in like the like the sort of like 80s, 90s tech boom. Like that actually like if you want a, a fascinating sort of like cultural document of this is like an actually really well hyped and like well deservedly hyped book by Stuart Brandt called How Buildings Learn which is about just like how buildings change over time. It's a really great book. Yeah. Highly recommend it. And Stuart Brand, if you don't know, was like the guy from like the whole earth catalog. So right. like that oh, right, kind right. of generation okay. of like post 
post hippie crunchy like sustainable level living guys who are just like eat granola and so anyways like the um like Stuart brandon like one of the last chapters of this book uh is writing about like like the whole earth catalog being run out of like this uh like basically this old warehouse like a garage basically um and like they had these pictures of just like this like space that was totally open in this office like office it's like basically a warehouse with like a bunch of fax machines in it it's like kind of really funny uh and so like there it's like like the open office like you know like we don't have walls but like i guess that but like sort of like you know we still are able to make it work and like it fosters like a kind of like collaboration comes with like having no privacy and so like basically like a lot of tech startups like in the 90s in san francisco like took advantage of like this different kind of industrial like post oil space like these kinds of buildings and then because of the financial success of like the tech industry at that time during sort of like the dot-com bubble people just like automatically assumed like this and still assume like this this idea like the open office like fosters collaboration and is like better for for business than like other offices and going back to Stuart brand like i'm not quite sure like what, what office he thinks there i thought it was like the whole work catalog but i have to make sure but like it's like one of the last like it's like it's like one of the last like chapters in the book is about like working space and like how that's changed it might be and, it might be like early wired magazine or something like that also yeah it's it sucks that uh you know like everyone's just sort of like sitting uh alone together in a big office just faxing each other you know it's really <laughs> i don't know i mean i think being able to drink beer while you work next to strangers is kind of the millennial dream yeah so right. I, I don't really think <laughs> but we need but we need to get back to our roots of faxing strangers yeah when are we gonna like when is faxing gonna be kind of spoke now you know like bespoke faxes <laughs> yeah you gotta capitalize on like once like millennials like most of us are turning 30 soon so like you know, like the younger ones, like me, like we're going to turn 30 soon. You got to capitalize on it. You got to like give, sell us like internet routers that like play like the, the sounds that whenever somebody sends you a text message, it just knocks you off the internet. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Whenever someone sends you a text message, you get charged like five cents. Oh man. I, like, when I was in high school, dude, I ran up my texting bill so bad that it was like $150. My mom was pissed. <laughs> My my parents gave me like prepaid phones, like throwaway phones, and so like I got an iPhone like when we, it was already on the iPhone five. Like I was in like right before I went to college, basically. Uh, so I was like, just didn't. And then when iPhone, I was like, holy shit, I can play like, Tiny Tower for like fifteen hours in class. Like, like <laughs> giving a child with like ADHD an iPhone is like really the worst thing you could possibly do. <laughs> and anyway, it's like I still play Tiny Tower. It's like the worst thing. That game's like ten years old, and I still like, oh my tower, I like got to build a new floor, like uh it's like totally dumb anyways but going back to like the minimal wasn't yeah like basically all of these like things converge like in sort of eras like you had the loft era in uh like the 70s that became well well established in cities all across the country and then you had the warehouse era of sort of like the 90s like tech bubble in the on the west coast came like it became like basically established in society that like the tech industry was like the way out of post-industrialism that like these kinds of like oh startup culture like this it became like an actual culture like a culture of like you go to school for STEM you like form a company like you have an IPO like you like you know skirt around labor laws yeah you rise and grind it's just like it became like this like whole yeah this yeah rise and grind ethos and so like I mean stuff like WeWork totally comes from that and it's like you can have the flexible space startup people had to like grow your brand 
I mean, it was actually, if you think about it, like we're sort of starting to move past that because of the pandemic, I guess. And hopefully the pandemic will, um, it's been long enough that hopefully it produced some kind of like meaningful cultural shift away from like this, like hyper individualistic, like hyper entrepreneurial kind of idea of like work and like the nature of work, especially for like post-college grad, like white collar work, which is like just as exploitative yeah, I think the idea of us all isolating in our little bubbles and working, you know, remotely without talking to our coworkers is definitely going to lead to that. That's like a freelance. I mean, I've been freelancing for like almost five years now. And so like, that's always been how it is. Like, I've never I worked in an office when I used to be an engineer, actually, as a test engineer, back when I was cool. I used to be really cool. I promise. Like, I was so cool back then. <laughs> Anyways, like I used to just basically like set loudspeakers on fire for like $13 an hour. And, uh, like we put them in these chambers, like just like kind of run them until they like started to smolder. So if I can like kind of speaking of acoustics, can we talk about (laughs) walls? Because, and this is something you touch on a little bit in the piece that we're discussing now. Like I, I, I feel a little bit crazy in so far as like, I want to live in a place with walls and that just seems to be very (laughs) unstylish right now. When David and I were disgusting heathen, I know when David and I were shopping around for houses, like so many of what our realtor was telling us and what we were seeing was like this beautiful open concept and i'm like i don't need my kitchen dining room and living room to be like the same room um and so the house that we ended up buying is this like beautiful victorian very kind of like classic victorian style and it is impossible to ever make it open concept which is my favorite thing about the house all the walls are load bearing yeah, every every wall yeah. in there is structurally in, in, like integral. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I know that a lot of this open concept stuff comes out of loft living and, you know, that aesthetic. But then there's also, and you you touch on this in the article, and I had heard it before, and it's my, fa- my favorite conspiracy theory, which is that open concept is a thing because men liked to watch walls getting knocked down on HGTV and that like HGTV actually <laughs> does <laughs> and like HGTV does actually have a, a pretty important role in like architectural trends and like home design and stuff. So you, like, is this craze for like not having any walls in your house ever going to end? Cause now I'm even seeing like luxury condos where like the be- the bedroom and the bathroom are the same room. And like, nice. the, like the closets, the only place in the house that has walls around it. It's just all deeply disturbing to me. Yeah. It's interesting because like I wrote the, a different article actually like a couple of years ago for city lab, which was a deep dive into like why we have like the open concept and like why it's bad, but it's like, or like why, you know, we didn't have it before and part of the reason is of course like it's cultural and this is before like actually an hgtv exec admitted i think to like like some like house magazine like town and country or something i don't know like house beautiful better homes and gardens one of those like (laughs) uh that like that was true that like the reason like we like like men like to watch like women like knock down and men walk knock down walls like adds like it like keeps like male viewers interested i mean i'm a i'm a woman and i like to watch it too so no no shade or anything but i just don't want my house it's kind of cathartic to watch someone just like take a fucking sledgehammer to a house yeah you know it's like yeah like yeah i wish i could do that like which, like, I don't even need that, you know, but, like, it's, like, the idea of taking a sledgehammer to anything is, like, really appealing right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, We're but, actually recording right now in a room that was open concept, but uh, the previous 
No, no, the previous owners put walls in because they wanted to have like some office. So this room, uh, the house that we're uh, recording in right now used to be a bakery from the 1800s. And so up until about, I think, 15 years ago, this room was actually all just one whole room all the way to the back. Um, and I guess, you know, they had a similar attitude to Brittany. Walls. Give me walls. Pro wall. Yeah. yeah. Build that wall. Well, it's like, it's funny. Build that wall. It's, like, it's actually a lot like less effort and money to take out a wall than it is to put a wall in that's like yeah. sort of irony here but like before so before like you know like you were saying about your victorian house it's like back in the day like the systems of framing a house were like very were like somewhat different because you had like basically before we cut down all the old growth forests in michigan and stuff like we had, had like, like balloon frame houses so like you had really long pieces of wood that would like basically make up like the full like one or two stories of house. And then you would fill it in with like sort of like other like sort of a platform type framing. Uh, and so when we ran out of like wood that was that long, which is literally what happened. Like we were just like we cut down all the trees that were that big and we couldn't like do balloon framing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we went to like platform framing and that allowed for uh, so, so like sort of like that can contributed a little bit to like why houses were smaller because it was less cheap to build like two stories or take took more effort. You know, it's better. I can go on and on about this. It's like I like obsessed with like the history of like framing houses. It's a complete like weirdo thing to be interested in. Anyway, like, hobbies, you know. Back in the day, like you had to have like a lot of these walls were just like they were load bearing because that's just how houses were constructed. It was like the cheapest way. And also like back in the day, like if you were like a worker, right? Like if you were like, you know, before unions and shit like that, like if you were just like a laborer, you know, in the city or like even like out in the country, like you lived in like a tenement with like a billion other people and like no privacy. And then, like, you or you like live sort of like you know, in like sort of like cottages or like things like kind of open rooms where you had like a single room that you just like had to make work, right? Like, if you see, like, watch the like evolution of like floor plans and houses like throughout the years, there's a really great uh book about this Houses with Our Names by uh Thomas Hubka. It's published by I think the University of Tennessee, uh, and it's it's like basically like how like the floor plan of like common houses, like vernacular houses, like transformed from like basically the two bedroom like like single house because like single family housing was like not really like a thing right until like basically world war ii right well no earlier than that it was like oh, the industrial okay. revolution yeah uh, okay. yeah industrial revolution when uh sort of like after like living standards had improved through like not only like technology but also like la- the labor movement really like people working in factories and like other places like and like of course like the the like emerging like american bourgeoisie like the lawyers and like uh like public intellectuals so david and mine's house actually was built by a prominent lawyer in the area it was the first house that was built on the street that it's on and at the time it would have been like a very now it's like a very solidly middle class house you know it's not worth a whole hell of a lot but at the time it would have been like the you know like a rich guy house And one of the things about it that actually drew me to the style of it that is very antithetical to the open concept is that you can really see the ways that spaces had their particular designated use. So you have like a parlor and a dining room and like the kitchen isn't built to be a social space. It's built to be a working space where you, you know, make food. You don't want to see the kitchen. And that's a a big part of it. So, so like part of it is what this, this, I'm going to try and summarize this as quickly as possible, but the, uh, when the single family house in America became sort of like established as a thing and like neighborhoods started to be planned and like suburbs, like first spring suburbs, streetcar suburbs started to be 
developed. Uh, like the style at the time was it so like so like back in the day you had like the rich people right you had like the the aristocracy of what like the titans of industry like whatever you know in America it's like a little bit different but in Europe you had like you know rich people and they had their houses and they had like servants quarters and they had had like their houses was stacked because they had servants they had to have like all the space for servants and stuff like that and so like middle class people like their houses were smaller not because they still didn't have like servants because they would have like a nanny for example or like like a housekeeper that was still pretty common and it's still pretty common but because of like the development of like the streetcar system and like other forms of public transportation those workers didn't have to like live in the house with the with their employers anymore they could commute and so the house size actually grew smaller for wealthier people um because i mean they were happy to like let servants like like you know like they would just like offshore their expenses they were like yeah these guys don't have to live with us we don't have to feed them like, they can just commute, live in the tenements and commute. And so, like, the average, like, wealthier, like, you know, lawyers, like, financier, uh, sort of, like, that kind of, like, class of people, like, their houses got smaller on average than they were before because of, like, this new division of labor that was exi- that was uh, sort of emphasized by, like a, like, a spatial division between the classes and the beginning of, like, the commute as a sort of institution. And so, like, but at the same time, like, you know, people who made less money, like, you know, like, union workers, for example, or, like, middle managers, or, you know, like, you know, small business people, like, you know, just public servants, like, their houses, they sort of, like, they started to, like, move out of the city, too, and, like, build more sort of, like, single-family houses. And so that's sort of when you get the era of, like, the Sears house, for example, or, like, mass-produced single family housing like no longer like designed proper necessarily by an architect like development for like the single family house really started to become entrenched and this is like in like the beginning of the 20th century right yeah which is so funny because literally literally across the street from us uh, are three or four i don't think they're sears houses proper but they're the exact same style of house that were all built like at the same time it's just very funny because like you can look at the street and see like basically we're the oldest house and then as you go further down the street and they're identical down to like the like the window you know the window um, placement yeah yeah, like everything about them is identical they're just painted different colors yeah why change a good thing (laughs) (laughs) well the thing is it's like they were mass produced and that's what made them affordable yeah Yeah, exactly And and it happened because of like the streamlining of like transportation systems with like shipping for example via like uh either by train or by truck and you could just hire a local contractor just the house together to do it in like a couple of weeks and so like this started to but like at the time like people wanted more they didn't want to live in like a single room house anymore because like they like lived in tenements or they lived in like you know rural cottages or whatever they wanted to like have a house with rooms and so and it made sense because like it was cheaper to build houses with rooms you could like you know shit like the the weight of the walls was load bearing like everything like was in its proper place which was optimal for like extremely easy mass production like it had to be that way for it to be as cheap as it was to produce and reproduce. And so like we start to just like, why did the walls come out is like sort of the question. And so like, there's sort of like a, uh, um, an evolution of why the walls came out. It starts with like, once you get sort of like the bungalow era, um, where it, the average bungalow was like four to five rooms, rooms. Like you start to see, uh, the evolution of the kitchen change because the kitchen was like a place that like, you didn't want to see like it was like a, it was previously like in wealthy people's houses and like earlier uh, sort of like single family houses for like the like sort of American bourgeoisie slash like the middle classes or whatever. Like you start to see like the, the, the kitchen is like 
it's in the back of the house and like you don't there's not a straight line of sight to it like ever but the bungalow is sort of more compact and so like you had to come up with more clever ways to to like hide the kitchen in fact the kitchen is the last room in the house that ever opens up at first like this was partially because like style taste had changed like instead of like having like a, if you have like a certain number like a certain size lot in a certain size house that you're trying to mass produce at a certain price like you may get rid of like the parlor first it's like oh we just want like a common living area without like a separate parlor for entertaining if you will so that's sort of like the development of the living room <laughs> and then you would have uh because like the, the your, again the bungalow was so compact and you wanted to have a certain number of bedrooms you had to allot the space in the front in, a, in like a really like rational way like what they would start to do is like they would start to blur the line between the living room and the dining room. And so you started to see uh, like an open floor between the living and dining room with like sometimes they, they would have like like glass doors, for example, right. like a permeable, visually permeable barrier. Like a French door so or something. Like Absolutely what is in our house. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This goes on for a while. And then as you start to see the development of the automobile and the development of the automobile suburb and eventually like um, sort of like of course, like, you know, the, like the era of like World War II, for example, like that actually is interesting because World War II, like people think like the average, like people are like, oh, houses like got smaller, but like for the average person who was like a laborer, like working like a blue collar job, like the average house size got bigger. Like it was, people are like, oh, like houses were big Victorians and they were, t- then they were like, like tiny, like World War II era, like, uh, like Cape Cods or whatever. It's like, they shrunk. It's like, that's not true. Like the, the, actually the amount of house that they, the average person could buy increased hugely with the development of like the automobile suburb and mm. eventually like like the suburb the post-war suburb that we like demonize and like have this fraught relationship with to this day like those houses were like way bigger than any like urban apartment that like people think they, they would have rooms for their children they could have their own kitchen i mean it was totally like different a different form and a different mode of living than it was before and that you know for the average person and uh, white person mostly, but, uh, for like the average, like blue collar worker. And so like after that, like, so like once you got further out from the city, right, like say like you're in the forties, like, and now it's starting to be the fifties, like you're moving further and further from the city, the lot sizes get bigger. And because like, there's no longer a constraint on materials because of wartime, you can like sort of build larger houses. And now you need a house with a garage because like you're commuting by car. Uh, and so like you start to see the development of the ranch house and the split level and the ranch house is really like where the origin of the open concept comes from, because even though if we don't think of ranch houses as open as they, as like, you know, new houses are today, they basically were the first house to like ever like get rid of, um, boundaries between like different, like common spaces, like fam, like family room, dining room, the, the bedrooms were all kind of like short off in one part of the house, like down a hallway. And then you had like all this open space, but still, still the wall between the kitchen and the, sometimes you would have like an open entryway to the kitchen or whatever, or like a, like a, like a cutout window for like line of sight. So the, like the housewife could supervise her children from the kitchen and the kitchen always faced the backyard forever in housing design all the way up until like the 1970s, because that's where like deliveries went was around the back. That's where the milkman came like you had to be able to watch your kids from the kitchen. So like the kitchen in the backyard, so the kitchen was always on the back. If there was like a fire, fire was a big part of this. Like if there was a fire, you needed a barrier between the kitchen to keep it separate from the rest of the house so the fire could be contained. And so like there was all of these reasons, like historically, why the kitchen, which is considered to be like the bathroom, like a dirty room, 
uh, where like eating and like cooking and smells and stuff happen are is kept separate from the rest of the house. And that cultural and like structural change did not happen where the kitchen became totally open. You know what caused that? And this is fascinating. And this comes back to TV cooking on cable television is what blew open the kitchen in like the seventies and eighties. People watched like, you know, Emerald and shit on like the cooking channel. And so like these big open spaces, like Martha Stewart on good morning America. And they were like, I want my kitchen to be like that. And then this myth came about that, like actually having the kitchen, like completely open is like, makes it for like developer sees on this. Like it makes for seamless entertaining. And the kitchen became this like new status symbol previously relegated to like a point of shame in the bathroom too in the 1980s like the bathroom was like an unmentionable place there was like this atlantic article that's really fascinating about how the bathroom like was like the unmentionable room like like there was it said that like a christmas story was like one of the first ever movies made where like there was a considerable scene in like a family house in a like, bathroom. with the bathroom like there's there's another fact that it's like that in a bathroom, yeah. And that, like, the Brady Bunch house, like, they filmed all those seasons of the Brady Bunch. There's, like, not a bathroom in There's that no house. bathroom like, they, in they Star Trek, either. Like, like they always talk about the sonic showers. Yeah, exactly. You never Deanna see Troy is in the bathroom at one point. Do, she's... do you get to see one? Deanna Troy, yeah. yeah. You get to see Deanna Troy in the bathroom. Of course they would put Deanna Troy in the bathroom. Yeah, I know. I, yeah. Look, 12-year-old me really appreciated it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had mentioned uh, earlier about how cars uh, had changed, you know, the the way that, that uh, houses were uh, built and the way that cities were laid out and everything else. And it reminded me of this famous painting that actually was done in Troy, New York, uh, where we're recording, uh, by the uh, American uh, painter Norman Rockwell called The Street Was Never the Same Again. Oh, yeah. And it's this picture of, like, mm-hmm. the, one of those long cars, like one of the, you know, original cars or whatever like the model t or something but it's yeah. like big behemoth of a vehicle yeah. and it has like dogs and kids like you know like uh running after the car and it's like whoa look at this car yeah, thing I've seen this and, and yeah the yeah. um it, that that puts a new spin on the the phrase because literally not just what happened in the street but like the way the street looks and like how the streets were laid out and like the use of um you know new structures etc uh all sort of came around that that vehicle and it also yeah. literally like changed where the streets were, especially in Troy, because like a lot of the things that are now back alleys were at the time where transportation would carriage have happened. Carriage houses, yeah. Carriage houses, yeah. that's where you would pull your carriage around back. Yep. Um, and yeah. it's, you know, like the, like how, like you can definitely see in the older houses that like life was lived around what is now the back of the house. Like mm. those doors are mm-hmm. often, for example, like much wider and um, easier. Like you, like that's why <laughs> every time we've ever had like an appliance or a piece of furniture delivered to the house usually you go around the back because that is like the front is much more narrow so it's interesting like you even get this literal flip of the street and the house with the invention of the car i mean it's it's totally like wild yeah the entrance becomes like totally like aggrandized but also like the creation of like the uh, attached garage creates a service entrance too which is like through the the garage is considered like part of services like the kitchen for example so like it was all the kitchen is like always off of the garage now but the opening of the kitchen is like really like it took like you know a century basically until like the kitchen would finally get opened up and so to answer a question about like whether or not like walls we're gonna put walls back in like the actually the new trend in like large single family houses like that developers are doing and they've been doing it for a couple years now is like what they call the mess kitchen which is basically like a small like galley kitchen uh, where you can like you know like prepare the food before you cook it in front of your guests in your main kitchen. Is that like a spice so, kitchen? I've heard that phrase, but I'm not really sure what yeah, it means. Yeah, sort of. Other than yeah, like it's like it's like basically they've got like they don't have like a stove with. in there, 
but it's just like, like it's like a like a like a narrow uh like almost like a galley where you have like two sets of countertops uh cabinets and stuff where you can like just like kind of like prep the food where it's out of sight of your guests before you like cook it and entertain it in your 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 open uh display piece kitchen <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly the formal so kitchen like, my emerald gossip kitchen <laughs> the naked truth which is that like the kitchen is messy you know like you've got to like there's still like some 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 residual shame in like the preparation of food, which is something servants do. Uh, and so, do so it's like, like the kitchen uh, has uh, so the I don't know if that means that the kitchen is again, but I think we're just going to find other ways to just like I don't know what the pandemic is going to do about this either. I people are like, oh, we're not going to want open concepts anymore because like everyone's living with their kids and like it's driving them insane. And it's like hopefully that's true, but like part of the reason why the open concept was like uh, in like sort of like like. In, places this concept developed in like sort of the cold war era of like the constant need to surveil your children uh, throughout like your house and have a constant line of there's like a, academic papers written about this about the need for like the housewife in the kitchen to have like a constant line of sight through their ranch house into their backyard like to, to like monitor their children and now Neuralink uh, is going to change all of that yeah, yeah. because you know there's just going to be a hundred percent like my kid in like a cubicle so they, they shut the fuck like spongebob on their ipad you know it's like it's, maybe that'll change things maybe we're just gonna get kid pods now like we kid i don't know yeah yeah i i i like the idea of like a uh a, a, a like an 18th century um like uh irish immigrant with like 30 kids like say like in a one room shack being like i like this open concept because like you know i can keep an eye on the children just <laughs> <laughs> so, like all uh, just saying no, the exact same thing that they say on HGTV. way of living. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. It's just like yeah. we don't live like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's funny you would want like some. It's, it's so funny because like too because like you know with the McMansion for example you see like McMansion plans and it's like their kids' rooms are like a thousand square feet away from the parents' rooms or on a different story. They're like, yeah, get these kids away from me. Right. Yeah. Like it's like. Like, you know, there's like a combination of like false community and like this this pretension of like entertaining and like communal life that comes with the open concept but it's really like, you know alienating at the same time right you yeah. just like have like a lot of the space where like you don't always know what to do with it like how do you lay out your house when you have no walls like i have a living room attached to like a dining room in my in like the two flat uh floor that i rent in chicago and like we just have like our sofa and like the you know like all of our living furniture and like the front part of the that like you know and then we just have like a bookshelf in the dining room and like nothing in there like we don't have a dining room table like, what do we do with this and i was like we're gonna get a pool table right and we can't afford a pool table. It's, like, yeah you know it's like uh and this is like you know there was probably like a wall maybe not load bearing there at one point but uh so it's it's interesting like uh, it's hard to like you know pick your furniture and like lay it out when like you don't have wall right yeah. you're like I don't know what I like. Don't know what because I've always lived in like ever since I've been like my my parents' house was like like that open like the dining room was like connected to the living room but the kitchen was always just connected by like open like uh, it wasn't like completely open like it had walls and then you had like an archway like that went into the dining room you had an archway that went into the living room but like it and you had like a cutout like over the sink that you could look out into the dining room but like it was you know it was totally open kitchen uh, and so like you know, my parents' house, like, they always, like, knew where to put their furniture. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting, kind of like, and I always that lived in houses, never, like, I that will never know. Yeah, it's totally lost to our generation. I've been to 
houses, like I've babysat for people and they have these open concept houses and they just kind of have like a dining table like somewhere and then there's just like a bunch of open space they don't know what to do with and then they put their couch against a wall because like, oh, a wall, a wall, like I know what to, I could put something against there. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's actually like the, the, uh, how like you, you know, lay, how you like design or like plan an interior around like having no walls is like actually like kind of unintuitive. Right. Like to mm-hmm. me, like I, I not that I'm like a great, great interior designer, uh, but like it, it, it is kind of clunky. But yeah, I mean, also the acoustics, like, I mean, it's terrible. Like there's no privacy. That's what right. I hate about it is that like, you're like, just always in everybody who's in the space is in your space. And there's just, it's, it's bodies in spaces, man. I don't <laughs> yeah. care for it's it. Bodies <laughs> in spaces. So, yeah. so this has been really fascinating and especially like, so I, okay. I think we can safely say that the iron weeds position is walls are good. Yeah. Um, unless they're on borders, in right. which case yeah. walls are bad. Exactly. But unless they're my in, border for my house, in which case it's good. The only border wall I want <laughs> is between my kitchen and my living room. Yeah, there we go. Um, Build that wall. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Kate, people can find you on, you have a really great Twitter account. It's at McMansion hell, right? That's very flattering. I use Twitter like it's Facebook in 2009. I I love it. I'm here for it. it. It's very funny. um, And they can catch all your writing there and stuff. We're going to put the article on minimalism and loft living and the uh, country house, the farmhouse style in the show notes for this episode. So you can check that out if you want to. And um, anything else you want to plug? Not right now. Um, I just moved to Chicago. So I'm going to unpack. I'm excited though because I'm giving the uh, I'm giving the Gill lecture in architectural criticism at the Yale School of Architecture. Oh, that's incredible! Uh, wow. Uh, well, that's and a- so you can uh, watch that on Zoom via the Yale School of Architecture website. Okay, well, very fuck cool. Yeah. Congratulations, and uh, also congratulations on recently getting bike pilled. And uh, stay safe in those streets. Enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on Ironweeds. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. So, David, as I understand it, you have some good news for us. I do. Uh, it's a. Uh, it, it's not going to sound good. All right, but but bear. Everything some, sounds good out of your mouth. <laughs> oh, it's true. Thanks. It's true. Uh, but oh, don't uh, do that. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Except that. Don't make that noise. Except for that thing. Uh, yeah. So um, I want to introduce everyone to Aria Demezzo for sheriff. All right. So in um, boo. Wait. So wait. No sheriff. Sheriff. This is the wildflower. Yeah. Okay. I don't want a sheriff. Right, I'm listening. I shot the sheriff, in fact. <laughs> so in Cheshire County, New Hampshire, um, Aria DeMezzo is running for sheriff. Okay. Uh, is she you- a faceless man? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so this is, this is the website. This is what uh, her website says. Uh, Aria DeMezzo is one of two candidates for sheriff of Cheshire County. She has had many encounters with police in her life, and very few of them have been positive. Mm. She is the high priestess of the reformed satanic church. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, okay. A trans woman. <laughs> oh, okay. Dank. And, and then she scratches out an anarchist and puts in Republican. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Okay. She, she is, bold letters, definitely not a socially progressive libertarian hijacking the Republican Party. Right, right. All right. Okay, so uh, so she won the primary. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> Damn. She won the Republican primary. Uh, and so her, her new, uh, the only other post on this website uh, is titled A Time of Self-Reflection. 
It was posted on September 11th. Think about it. No coincidences. Never forget. Yeah. And um, uh, she says, as of late, I've been called a wolf in sheepskin. First of all, it's worth pointing out that a libertarian anarchist who runs as a Republican isn't a wolf in sheepskin. They're a sheep in wolfskin. <laughs> Ooh, very nice. Uh, the Republican and Democrats are the parties of hostility, aggression, taxation, military-style policing, unconstitutional mandates, states of emergency, unending war, and murdering children around the globe. As of yet, no elected libertarian anarchist has done any of those things. <laughs> Where's the lie? Where is, Where the, is lie? the lie? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, she, uh, um, she's going to try to become uh, the sheriff. More than 4,000 people went into the voting booth on September 8th this week, and they all filed, uh, they all filled in the circle by my name, despite knowing absolutely nothing about the person they were no- nominating to be the most powerful law enforcement position in the county. Uh, that's a level of recklessness of which any decent human being should be ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe, maybe they really are just down for the libertarian socialist cause. Maybe, who knows? yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe 4,000 people in New Hampshire want a Satanist <laughs> anarchist as their yeah, sheriff. Yeah. Yeah, look, li- stranger things have happened. Yeah, they're going to live free. Yeah, and she said, and, and I'm, not the o- I'm not the only one. A friend of mine, who I won't name because I haven't asked his permission to, uh, even though I doubt he would care, uh, had a similar result. He did absolutely no campaigning. I am his friend, and I was only barely aware that he was running. Uh, yet this person who did no campaigning, has no political connections, and to my knowledge, has never been to a single Republican meeting, and didn't just win his race, he placed first in his race, where there were several other options. So, th- th- I-, I guess, like, you can do all kinds of shit in New Hampshire, live for your die, motherfucker, where you can just, like, like, no one's paying attention, and you just, like... Sign up on the Republican line. I'm not saying I don't think this is a bad idea. <laughs> like, I mean, I yeah, I I, I agree. I, I mean, think... the Democrats do that around here, or the sorry, the Republicans do that around here all the time. Yeah, on the Green as we've party talked line. about many times yeah. on the show, like yeah. Republicans run on the Green Party line, the Working Families Party line, all the time. Um, it's there's no look. We've been watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, so I just want to be like, no tea, no shade. Like you know, it's fine. Just do it and be sheriff and be a fucking Satanist sheriff. <laughs> like nobody ever gets to go to jail again. Cool. Yeah. Is, is, does she have a stance on evictions? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm assuming her stance is yeah. property's threat is theft. Yeah, and, uh... I would hope so. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because I always associate the libertarian movement with uh, New Hampshire, but the libertarian in the American context, which is to say, um, property the, values. Yeah, yeah the yeah. propertarian, as sure, um, yeah. you know, m- many people uh, call them. Um, and the idea that they, you know, she could describe herself as a libertarian and uh, not really. Uh, emphasize the libertarian socialist aspect of it um probably would work it's like gaming the system yeah Yeah, absolutely (laughs) yeah i don't see anything so far i just searched for eviction on this page and i don't i haven't found anything yet all right i'll I'll write to her after yeah this episode we'll do a follow-up yeah we'll do a writing campaign really maybe we can get her on the show yeah let's find out if we can uh talk to her that'd be that'd be fucking rad that would be cool it reminds me of Sherry Honkla. Do you guys know who Sherry Honkla is? Honk. No, I don't know who Sherry Honkla is. So, That's so, an unfortunate last name. I think I'd be getting that changed. Well, yeah. So Sherry Honkla uh, wrote, ran in 2012 uh, with Jill Stein as the VP candidate uh, for Jill Stein's, I think, first presidential run under the Green Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, she made her political 
debut, at least in my world, by running for sheriff. Um, and she had, I think it was like a hip hop version of I Shot the Sheriff uh, played by like a big loudspeaker that she uh, carried on a horse that she paraded through town to announce her candidacy as sheriff. And that she, fucking rules. Where was this? Um, I think it was Philadelphia. Okay. Um, and she had um, done a lot of uh, anti-eviction uh, work because this was after the uh, financial collapse and, you know, the, the housing um, crisis in which, like, you know, millions of people lost their homes and were evicted by sheriffs. And mm-hmm. so she took up the mantle of running for sheriff um, on that platform of, like, anti-eviction. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, any, anyone, uh, any enterprising individual in Rensselaer County wants to uh, run against Ch- uh, Sheriff Russo. You We've know. been trying to get you to run, David. I know. Yeah. I, I've... I, I, like I, I say, any enterprising individual wants to do it, but also like not me. Yeah. Well, I, like you also like, like I'm not joking now. Like you need to be brave as fuck because yeah. those sheriffs yeah. will kill you. Yeah, like yeah, they'll, they'll just fucking kill you uh, if they don't. You know, if they, if if you win or if you even seem like you're gonna win, like it, they they could do some really terrible things to you to keep their power because they're not con- like constrained by any sort of law. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially the constitutional sheriffs. It's like I literally am the law. Yeah, whatever my whim is. I am the law. <laughs> and the, it's like. That flag is fringe on it. <laughs> Fuck you. All right. Well, uh, great episode, boys. Yeah. Yeah, that was a lot and, of fun. Um, uh, thanks again to, for, uh, to Kate for yeah, coming on. Yeah, that was great. Um, and you're going to get Lennon this week, but truth be told, I haven't read it yet, so I don't know what it's about. Ooh. I assume it continues to be about marks in the state. And, uh, and liberals not being shit. Yeah. Yeah, and polemics and uh, sort of historic. And I also strategic. discovered that I've been mispronouncing Kautsky this whole time. Is it Kautsky? It's Kautsky. Oh, shit. I know. Well, you know, what are you going to do? There's a lot of pronunciations in this book, and I do my best, folks. I do my best, but I did. This was a bit of an oversight. It is Kautsky, so. Um, but anyway, you're going to get some of that, and it'll be a surprise to both of us because I don't know what it is yet. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> and thanks for doing it. I've been very much enjoying listening yeah, to Yeah, you know, I think this might be, unless we get like a real outpouring of support, I think this might be our last audiobook series just because like it is a, a bit time work, consuming, yeah. and I am trying to make some other things happen in my life and in the world of like audio production. And so it's it's just, it's... Look, it's not like, you know, it, it's taking up a huge amount of my time, but it is like a time that I could spend doing other things. For example, researching QAnon. And so today we are going to record a, you know, we call them bonus. I'm noticing a lot of other podcasts call them premium episodes. And I'm wondering Ooh. if maybe Ooh. we should rebrand our Patreon stream to premium. Yeah. Well, in any event, it's a decadent we- experience. <laughs> Um, so thanks so much to our new patrons. We're so happy to have you. And uh, at the time that this episode will be published, it may or may not already be up on the patrons Patreon stream. But if you want to hear about QAnon, um, go to patreon.com slash ironweeds and you can learn uh, learn as we learn because that's what I've been doing for a week. And, yeah. you know, when I started researching, I knew already like a fair amount about QAnon. Mm-hmm. But boy, howdy, let me tell you, it's a big fucking universe it's, yeah it's its own so, world yeah so we'll talk about that and um Brittany and i were watching like a three-hour documentary doc uh, big scare quotes around documentary of, yeah about QAnon last night it was fun yeah um and in the meantime you can find us on twitter iron reads pod you can find us on instagram iron reads pod shoot us an email oh we oh i forgot to ask you if we could read it all yeah. right never oh. mind we'll do that later yeah um 
we did get, get a great. We, did, we got a really good email. And we definitely want to read it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I, I, I meant to ask him if we could. Yeah, but, we'll, we'll reach uh, out. It'll be next week. Yeah, maybe next week. Yeah. All right. And uh, you can shoot us an email as well at ironweedspod. At gmail.com. We love you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace. Part 3. Abolition of Parliamentarism. The Commune, Marx wrote, quote, was to be a working, not a parliamentary, body, executive and legislative at the same time. Instead of deciding once in three or six years which member of the ruling class was to represent and repress the people in Parliament, universal suffrage was to serve the people constituted in communes, as individual suffrage serves every other employer in search for workers, foremen, and accountants for his business. End quote. Owing to the prevalence of social chauvinism and opportunism, this remarkable criticism of parliamentarism, made in 1871, also belongs now to the forgotten words of Marxism. The professional cabinet ministers and parliamentarians, the traitors to the proletariat and the practical socialists of our day, have left all criticism of parliamentarism to the anarchists, and, on this wonderfully reasonable ground, they denounce all criticisms of parliamentarism as anarchism. It is not surprising that the proletariat of the advanced parliamentary countries Disgusted with such socialists as the Scheidemans, Davids, Legians, Sembats, Renalds, Hendersons, Vandervelds, Stonings, Brantings, Bizalatis, and company, has been with increasing frequency giving its sympathies to anarcho-syndicalism, in spite of the fact that the latter is merely the twin brother of opportunism. For Marx, however, revolutionary dialectics was never the empty, fashionable phrase, the toy rattle, which Plekhanov, Kautsky, and others have made of it. Marx knew how to break with anarchism ruthlessly for its inability to make use even of the pigsty of bourgeois parliamentarism, especially when the situation was obviously not revolutionary. But at the same time, he knew how to subject parliamentarism to genuinely revolutionary proletarian criticism. To decide once every few years which members of the ruling class is to repress and crush the people through parliament, this is the real essence of bourgeois parliamentarism, not only in parliamentary constitutional monarchies, but also in the most democratic republics. But if we deal with the question of the state, and if we consider parliamentarism as one of the institutions of the state, from the point of view of the tasks of the proletariat in this field, what is the way out of parliamentarism? How can it be dispensed with? Once again, we must say, the lessons of Marx, based on the study of the Commune, have been so completely forgotten that the present-day social democrat, i.e. present-day traitor to socialism, really cannot understand any criticism of parliamentarism other than anarchist or reactionary criticism. The way out of parliamentarism is not, of course, the abolition of representative institutions and the elective principle, but the conversion of the representative institutions from talking shops into working bodies. Quote, the commune was to be a working, not a parliamentary, body, executive and legislative at the same time. A working, not a parliamentary body. This is a blow straight from the shoulder at the present-day parliamentarian country, from America to Switzerland, from France to Britain, Norway, and so forth. In these countries, the real business of state is performed behind the scenes and is carried on by the departments, chancelleries, and general staffs. 
Parliament is given up to talk for the special purpose of fooling the common people. This is so true that even in the Russian Republic, a bourgeois democratic republic, all these sins of parliamentarism came out at once, even before it managed to set up a real parliament. The heroes of rotten Philistinism, such as the Skobolevs and Saratellis, the Chernovs and the Avsentievs, have even succeeded in polluting the Soviets after the fashion of the most disgusting bourgeois parliamentarism, in converting them into mere talking shops. In the Soviets, the socialist ministers are fooling the credulous rustics with phrase-mongering and resolutions. In the government itself, a sort of permanent shuffle is going on in order that, on the one hand, as many socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks as possible may in turn get near the pie, the lucrative and honorable posts, and that, on the other hand, the attention of the people may be engaged. Meanwhile, the chancelleries and army staffs do the business of the state. Dielo Naroda, the organ of the ruling Socialist Revolutionary Party, recently admitted in a leading article with the matchless frankness of people of good society, in which all are engaged in political prostitution that even in the ministries headed by the socialists, the whole bureaucratic apparatus is in fact unchanged is working in the old way and quite freely sabotaging revolutionary measures. Even without this admission, does not the factual history of the participation of the socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks in the government prove this? It is noteworthy, however, that in the ministerial company of the cadets, the Chernovs, Rusinovs, Zenzinovs, and other editors of Dielo Naroda have so completely lost all sense of shame as to brazenly assert, as if it were a mere bagatelle, that in their ministries, everything is unchanged. Revolutionary democratic phrases to gull the rural simple Simons, and bureaucracy and red tape to gladden the hearts of the capitalists. That is the essence of the honest coalition. The commune substitutes for the venal and rotten parliamentarism of bourgeois society institutions in which freedom of opinion and discussion does not degenerate into deception, for the parliamentarians themselves have to work, have to execute their own laws, have themselves to test the results achieved in reality, and to account directly to their constituents. Representative institutions remain, but there is no parliamentarism here as a special system, as the division of labor between the legislative and the executive, as a privileged position for the deputies. We cannot imagine democracy, even proletarian democracy, without representative institutions, but we can and must imagine democracy without parliamentarism, if criticism of bourgeois society is not mere words for us, if the desire to overthrow the rule of the bourgeoisie is our earnest and sincere desire, and not a mere election cry for catching workers' votes, as it is with the Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries, and also the Scheidemans, Legians, Simblats, and Vandervelds. It is extremely instructive to note that, in speaking of the function of those officials who are necessary for the commune and for proletarian democracy, Marx compares them to the workers of every other employer, that is, of the ordinary capitalist enterprise, with its workers, foremen, and accountants. There is no trace of utopianism in Marx, in the sense that he made up or invented a new society. No, he studied the birth of the new society out of the old, in the forms of transition from the latter to the former, as a mass proletarian movement, and tried to draw practical lessons from it. He learned from the commune, 
just as all the great revolutionary thinkers learned unhesitatingly from the experience of great movements of the oppressed classes, and never addressed them with pedantic homilies, such as Plakhanov's, they should not have taken up arms, or Tseretelli's, a class must limit itself. Abolishing the bureaucracy at once, everywhere and completely, is out of the question. It is a utopia. But to smash the old bureaucratic machine at once and to begin immediately to construct a new one that will make possible the gradual abolition of all bureaucracy, this is not a utopia. It is the experience of the commune, the direct and immediate task of the revolutionary proletariat. Capitalism simplifies the functions of state administration. It makes it possible to cast bossing aside and to confine the whole matter to the organization of the proletarians, as the ruling class, which will hire workers, foremen, and accountants in the name of the whole society. We are not utopians. We do not dream of dispensing at once with all administration, with all subordination. These anarchist dreams, based upon incomprehension of the tasks of the proletarian dictatorship, are totally alien to Marxism, and, as a matter of fact, serve only to postpone the socialist revolution until people are different. No, we want the socialist revolution with people as they are now, with people who cannot dispense with subordination, control, and foremen and accountants. The subordination, however, must be to the armed vanguard of all the exploited and working people, i.e. to the proletariat. A beginning can and must be made at once, overnight, to replace the specific bossing of state officials by the simple functions of foremen and accountants, functions which are already fully within the ability of the average town dweller and can well be performed for a workman's wages. We, the workers, shall organize large-scale production on the basis of what capitalism has already created, relying on our own experience as workers, establishing strict, iron discipline backed up by the state power of the armed workers. We shall reduce the role of state officials to that of simply carrying out our instructions as responsible, revocable, modestly paid foremen and accountants, of course with the aid of technicians of all sorts, types, and degrees. This is our proletarian task. This is what we can and must start with in accomplishing the proletarian revolution. Such a beginning, on the basis of large-scale production, will of itself lead to the gradual withering away of all bureaucracy, to the gradual creation of an order, an order without inverted commas, an order bearing no similarity to wage slavery, an order under which the functions of control and accounting, becoming more and more simple, will be performed by each in turn, will then become a habit and will finally die out as the special functions of a special section of the population. A witty German social democrat of the 70s of the last century called the Postal Service an example of the socialist economic system. This is very true. At the present, the Postal Service is a business organized along the lines of state capitalist monopoly. Imperialism is gradually transforming all trusts into organizations of a similar type, in which standing over the common people, who are overworked and starved, one has the same bourgeois bureaucracy. But the mechanism of social management is here already to hand. Once we have overthrown the capitalists, crushed the resistance of these exploiters with the iron hand of the armed workers, and smashed the bureaucratic machinery of the modern state, we shall have a splendidly equipped mechanism freed from the parasite, a mechanism which can very well be set going by the united workers themselves, 
who will hire technicians, foremen, and accountants, and pay them all, as indeed all state officials in general, workmen's wages. Here is a concrete, practical task which can immediately be fulfilled in relation to all trusts, a task whose fulfillment will rid the working people of exploitation, a task which takes account of what the commune has already begun to practice, particularly in building up the state. To organize the whole economy on the lines of the Postal Service so that the technicians, foremen, and accountants, as well as all officials, shall receive salaries no higher than a workman's wage, all under the control and leadership of the armed proletariat, that is our immediate aim. This is what will bring about the abolition of parliamentarism and the preservation of representative institutions. This is what will rid the laboring classes of the bourgeoisie's prostitution of these institutions.